Alrighty, Exodus chapter 12. So, get a chance to talk here this morning about what Easter means and what Easter represents. We have a lot of stuff to cover this morning, and we're going to be ending with communion here as we get a chance to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. It's always exciting to kind of come together to see what God has in store. And when I was kind of praying about what to go through and what the Lord had in plan for us this morning, to me it came back here to this story of the exodus of Christ and being the Passover lamb and what that means, what that represents. Richard did a great job at the sunrise service this morning teaching on that idea of this Passover lamb. And I wanted to take this point in exodus and kind of grow with that. Because when we think about Easter, really what it comes down to is Christ being the Passover. That's what it comes down to. And this is a concept that is kind of uh, foreign to us in some ways. You know, we've done some stuff out here at church before with, with Passover and with the Seder meal, etc. But for a lot of us, this idea of Passover lamb doesn't really mean a whole lot. This is something we started doing this year at our house. Is we actually had a small Passover meal. At our house, you know, went out and got the lamb, got the different elements of the Passover. Dawn made the unleavened bread and kind of tried to teach the kids what this means and what it represents. Because it has so much symbolism. If you've ever partaken in one of those meals, you know what I'm talking about. You have the bitter herbs, you have the bread of affliction, you have the horseradish. All these things that are awful. Absolutely awful. If you have never had a Passover meal, it is awful. That's the point. As we're eating this meal at our dinner table, we're telling the boys, take the bitter herbs, stick them in the salt water, bread of affliction, eat some horseradish. They're like, Dad, do we have to? It's like, you bet. <laughs> I know it tastes awful, and that's the point. This is supposed to remind you of the sin and the slavery. It's disgusting. And that's kind of the point of it, is to remind you of everything that you've gone through and everything that you went through, that affliction, that bitterness of what the Jews went through and what God did by pulling them out. I share this story with the 830 service, and I want to share this here real quick. We had a Passover meal a few years ago out here at Harvest. We had a representative come out and kind of share some of the elements of the Passover. And I've never forgot this point. The first thing you do at a, at a Seder meal is the hostess, usually the woman, lights the candle at the table. And that's the first thing you do. So as we're getting ready to start the meal, we're sitting at the table. And so the guy leading it up says, you're supposed to light the candles. And so one of the women at the table represents the hostess. She gets up, she lights the candle. So as we're sitting there getting ready to start the meal, it happened to be that Alan Wright, who runs Sound and Me, were sitting at a table by ourselves. So he says, okay, you know, the woman at the table lights this candle. I looked at Alan. I said, you light it. <laughs> Alan looked at me and said, you light it. I said, I'm the pastor. You light it. So, one of us had to be the mature believer, because the other one was obviously a heathen, and uh, I lit the candle. So, but there's so much symbolism, there's so much that kind of goes with that. And you see this here in Exodus. They have their Passover meal at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12, and how it represents Christ, and therefore we are free from the sin of slavery, we are free from death through what Jesus Christ did. But then, they all leave. They exit. They exodus. Verse 31 of Exodus chapter 12. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herbs as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. 
So the people took their dough before it was leavened, having their kneading bowls bound up in their clothes on their shoulders. Now the children of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, and they had asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they granted them what they requested. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Look at that as back wages, if you will, for the years of slavery. Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramsey to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. That's where I want to stop. So 600,000 men. You add in women, you add in children, it's quite possible you're pushing 2 million people. That's a lot of people. A lot of people to be taken out of Egypt. This is a huge deal. Egypt's economy just changed literally overnight. Now, all of a sudden, there's 2 million people leaving, loaded down with all this stuff, and now they're going out into the wilderness. If you really need to stop and you think about this, this is not the best planned event from Egypt's perspective or from even the Jews' perspective. It doesn't make sense. We're going to take 2 million people and we're just going to load up everything we got and we're going out into the desert. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. Now, we know what happens. God miraculously provides water. He provides manna. He provides meat. He takes care of them. But at this moment, at this time, this is a complete, utter step of faith. But really, what I want to build on is one point that's going to take us to the rest of this. Here we have 2 million people leaving, 600,000 men. These guys have been slaves for decades. I am assuming they were not in the best physical shape. I'm assuming that they did not have the best diet compared to what the Egyptians had. These people probably were a ragged group of people that were in slavery. They had been whipped. They had been beaten. They had been taken advantage of. And now all of a sudden they're supposed to go to survive in the wilderness. Here's the neat thing about this. In Psalm 105, Psalm 105 verse 37, when it talks about the Exodus, little known miracle in the Bible, the writer of Psalm 105 says, They all left and none of them were feeble. Now think about that for a second. Not a single one left feeble, physically, any problems. Now, that, that's, that's amazing. I mean, if you really stop and you think about it, two million people leaving and not a single one left feeble, that's a picture of what the Passover lamb does for you. He pulls you out of Egypt, which represents the world. He pulls you out of the slavery of sin, And as you leave the slavery of sin, it's a walk of faith. It really doesn't make sense. It's a walk of faith. But guess what? He makes sure that you're not feeble. That's what the Lord does. And that's a great picture of what Easter is. Christ wants to pull you out of slavery, out of sin, take you out of Egypt, which is the world, and he wants to make you whole and complete. We are more than a conqueror. In Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 37. We are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Now, if all this is true, if God pulled out 2 million Jews, they were not feeble. He took care of their physical needs. He took care of them in the wilderness. He says we're more than a conqueror in Romans 8, 37. My simple question this morning is, why as Christians are we so whiny and weak? Why? I I really don't get this. Christians seem to be some of the biggest complainers and whiners you've ever seen. And we know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We know heaven awaits us. But yet, 
We walk in defeat when we're supposed to be walking in victory. There was not a feeble one among them. But yet we get saved, and oh boy, do we hear the woe is me. Woe is me. My, my life situations, my personal situations, spiritually, emotional, physically, I'm suffering. But yet the Bible just said that I, I'm not feeble. But yet I sure feel feeble. Can you go with me to Romans 8, please? What's it mean to be more than a conqueror in Christ? Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 37. Great verse to mark, underline, circle, star, whatever you would like to do. Romans 8, verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That's what I call a refrigerator verse. Stick that on your fridge. Now, we know that. We know that. I'm a conqueror. I get the point, James. I, I come out of Egypt... I was enslaved to sin. The Passover lamb saved me. I'm no longer feeble. I'm more than a conqueror. I get it. But you don't know what I'm going through. It's amazing how we say that all the time. I understand the truth of the gospel. I understand the truth of scripture. But you don't know what I'm going through. Like we are the exception to the rule. So God said for all of us to have joy, but not me. God said that everybody's a conqueror, but not me. God said I'll work for the good of all things, but not me. And we walk around in this defeatist mentality. Now, don't get me wrong. I know life has days, months, years, maybe for some of you, decades of difficulty. But there's also a tomb that is empty that shows that you get to go to heaven for all of eternity. But yet, I'm defeated. Look what the full context. See, we go to Romans 8.37... But what's the full context of Romans 8.37? Look at verse 26. The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. I'm weak. The Bible admits that. I need strength. Even back up further, look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Basically, the Paul is saying here is, I realize I'm suffering in this world. This world is a painful, suffering world. But, in comparison to what I have in heaven, oh, nothing. I can get through the sufferings of this world because I realize what awaits me in heaven because I am heavenly minded. My focus is on eternity. My focus is on what Jesus has done. My focus is on Easter. The tomb is empty. If Christ was still in the grave, Paul wrote in Corinthians, we are the most pitiable of all people. But since the grave is empty, and this is why we get together and celebrate Easter, is because the tomb is empty. Here's the problem with Easter. We put so much emphasis on it. I mean, we, we would not miss Easter. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a ticket straight to hell, as far as I know, if you miss Easter. I mean, it's almost like we have this mindset that Easter Sunday has got to be worth ten regular Sundays. Or some type of thing. And I always stop and I think, because I have struggled with Easter for years. Always a struggle with Easter. I was saying at the first service that I remember the first Easter message.
that, that I taught after I took over about 15 years ago. And I remember coming into the sanctuary, seeing all these people, and thinking, where did you come from? Because you're, you're, you're not normally here. <laughs> and it's like, wow. And I remember distinctly, true story, there was this guy years ago that, that showed up on Easter. And it's like, okay, hey, great. I don't know how he found about the church. I, you know, meet him, talk to him, find out, you know, I think he's, he, I know he should say, I know he signed the guest book. Dropped him a letter, thanks for visiting, etc. Never saw him again. Shows up again next Easter. Okay, great to see you. Never saw him again that. Kid you not, showed up again the next Easter. And in your mind, you're thinking, okay, this guy's coming at Easter. What, what needs to happen to have him be here throughout the year? You know, Lord, what are we doing wrong that he's not wanting to come the other 51 Sundays of the year? So what we finally decided to do was hire him and put him on staff. That's how we got rich, is this idea of... <laughs> But there's this burden, there's this, there's this burden of Easter, and I struggled with that, and I never knew how to articulate it until I heard a message recently where the pastor said that he has a love-hate relationship with Easter. He loves what it means, he loves what it represents, he loves everything about it from a Christian perspective, but yet he hates what it has become in some ways, this holier-than-thou Sunday. And you know what, and maybe I take it a bit personally... I think today is vitally important. I also think April 27th, next Sunday, is pretty important, too. And I think April 13th, that just happened, was pretty important, too. And I sometimes wonder, what would happen if we put the emphasis on every Sunday, like we do for Easter? Or even one step further, what would happen if we put the emphasis on every day? Because if Jesus truly has come into this world, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again, is not every day Easter and Christmas? That's the mindset we need to have. But for some reason, and I don't think it's wrong to acknowledge Easter. Don't take it that way. But Lord, I want to live for you 365 days a year. I I want that focus, that mindset. Why don't I do that? Because instead of being a conqueror, I'm a complainer. Think about that. Simple question to ask yourself. Are you a conqueror or are you a complainer? Conqueror sees an empty tomb sees what it means and represents, understands there are awful days, awful weeks, awful months, awful years, maybe in awful decades, but the tomb is empty and I have an eternity in heaven with Christ. A complainer says, you have no idea how bad my life is. You don't know what it's like at home. You don't know what it's like at work. You don't know what it's like with my health. You don't know what it's like with this. You have no idea. I don't, but I know the tomb's empty. I never knew what to do with complainers. Because to me, it's like, the tomb's empty. Let's, let's focus on that. But yet it comes back to that exception to the rule. Their life is so difficult, it's hard to look past that. I heard somebody say one time, when you have somebody who's really going through a difficult time, do the 15-minute rule, and I've shared this with you before. You let them just talk. Let them just vent. Let them just complain for 15 minutes. And he said, let them go. Don't interrupt don't, don't stop and say, well, you know, there's this scripture. Don't stop and say there's this point. For 15 minutes, just let them get it all off their chest, say whatever they want, whine, complain, whatever. And then at 15 minutes, stop them. So I tried that. There was this guy that was going through a marital difficulty, and he had become very bitter about it, very upset. So he wanted to talk. He came in. He sat down. He talked. I looked at the clock, gave him 15 minutes. 
At the end of 15 minutes, I interrupted him and I said, are you done now? He felt convicted. He felt, dare I say, even a little guilty. And he realized what he did. That he just rambled and complained. As a believer who's supposed to know Christ, he just spent 15 minutes whining, moping, complaining. It really changed things. I thought, this is the greatest counseling trick I have ever seen in my life. (laughs) All counseling now will be done. And I'll, I'll give it 20. You know, a few minutes to say hi, 15 minutes, a few minutes to pray, out the door. I get three done an hour. You know? So I tried it again. Now there's a gal that wanted to talk. This gal was quite the gal. So same thing. She came in. Life was rough. I know what was going to happen. I've done this before. She kind of goes on and on. So I said, okay, 15 minutes. Looked at the clock. Got done. This is a great trick. At the end of 15 minutes, I said, are you done yet? She looked at me. She goes, no, haven't even started. And she just kept on going. (laughs) Never use the trick again because... Some people don't realize they're a conqueror. They they just don't get it. Because they allow themselves to be focused on what's wrong with life instead of what's right for all of eternity. You know, go back here to this Romans 8. How do we build up to this more than a conqueror? Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So, I, I suffer now. But for all of eternity, all of eternity, I'm blessed. Verse 22, there's groanings and laborings in this world. Okay, I get that. Verse 26, even though I'm weak, I have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You're not weak. Because the Spirit helps you in your weakness. Which takes us to verse 28, and we know that all things... Work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If there's a difficulty in your life, God has allowed that difficulty to come into your life for a purpose. And to just confirm that this is not some mess up. Verse 29, you are foreknown, you are predestined. You Verse 30, you are predestined, you are called, you are justified, you are glorified. This is not some accident. This is not some God. Do you really realize how bad it is? Do you realize how, how, how difficult I'm going through right now? I mean, you're supposed to be my father. You're supposed to see these things. Sometimes as parents, we miss that, don't we? We're at the season of life right now where we go back. We have a crick behind our house. And we go back for hours, it seems like, to the crick. You look under every log, you mess with everything, you're just trying to find stuff. So I took the older four back yesterday, and we were back at the creek. And so we're all playing in the creek with the logs down, all the stuff like that. And Layden's not with us. He's my fourth. And I, and I see him. I mean, I see his head and stuff. And he's just kind of like sitting on the creek bed type thing. And so we kind of keep playing and stuff. And I'm like, Layden, you doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing fine, you know. So we keep going. I finally walk over. I said, Layden, what are you doing? And I look. His waiter boots fell off. So he's literally hanging on the crick bed with his boots just inches from his feet. And I said to him, why didn't you ask for help? You know, buddy, I was right there. Why didn't you ask for help? He didn't want to get in trouble. His boots fell off. And I stop and I think about that spiritually. People come in and they're completely, utterly struggling why don't you ask for help? And for everybody, it's a different reason. 
For some people, it's they don't feel they know God close enough because there's not really a relationship. For some people, they don't want to be selfish and ask for themselves. For some people, what good does it do? And for some people, I love you all, you just like to complain. There are some people that thrive off of, woe is me. And if your world is okay, I have seen people do this. They go thrive off somebody else's, woe is me. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. We are not feeble. We are not weak. We have been called out of Egypt, called out of the world. The Passover lamb has made us all not feeble. There are still difficulties in this world. There are still difficult times. There's no doubt about that. But why, as believers, are we walking in defeat? So what happens when you are feeble? Because there's going to be times. Go with me to Hebrews 12, please. Hebrews 12. It's not biblical to say that you'll never face difficulties. It's not. I think we, as Christians, do a huge disservice to non-believers when we start making these amazing claims. Oh, you're not saved? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and your marriage will become perfect. Your kids will become perfect. You'll find the perfect job. All your physical illnesses will be healed. And you'll have butterflies land on your ears every day just because that's what Jesus does. That, that's not in there. The truth of it is Jesus said in John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Peter wrote, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial you're going through. You will have difficult times. The question comes up, what are you going to do during those difficult times? Hebrews 12 tells us what to do. Verse 12 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. God says, strengthen the weak hands, the feeble knees. Strengthen. There's our word feeble again. That's what he says to do. Because you're more than a conqueror. Now, if we look just at that verse, that sure sounds good. Strengthen the hands, feeble knees, make straight the path. We've got to get the full context. Lord, how do I do this? Go back to the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do I get through this? I look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look what he went through, verse 2. He endured the cross, despised the shame, while, verse 2, still having joy. He set the example for us. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Look at Jesus, it says, because if you don't, you'll become weary and discouraged in your souls. You'll start looking at everything that is wrong in life instead of what is right in life. And there's still people that hear that and say, Yeah, but you don't know. I don't know. The Lord knows. And the Lord says you can still 
not be feeble because of what I did for you. Truth be told, once again, some people want to be complainers instead of being conquerors. That's what they want to do. And we look at verse 3 and this idea of becoming weary and discouraged in our souls. And we hear that, we know it, we see it. Does it affect us? That's why I think verse 4 is so important. You have not resisted to bloodshed striving against sin. I think verse 4, I like to translate it to Jesus basically saying, man up. Uh, You're going through a tough time, verse 3? Oh, okay, verse 4. Did you die on the cross? No, you didn't? Then you haven't resisted to the point of bloodshed, man up. Boy, don't we do that? Oh my goodness, what was me? Did you hear what she said about me? No, I didn't, but Jesus died on the cross for your sins. I think we can move through this. I I told you before that that we have a little rule at home. And and this just happened on Friday. Laid in, fourth born, out in the creek, fell down, got mud on his knee. Now, Layden is the one of our boys that any stone, pebble, sand in a shoe, we have to take the shoe off and do major surgery. We just have to. I mean, it's he's the one that can't get his socks right. And, you know, have you ever had a kid that can't get their socks right? I don't like those kids. I'm just telling you that right now. I remember distinctly one time, and I don't know if my, my dad's in here or not, but I remember one time as a kid going to my dad, saying, Dad, my socks aren't right in my boots. And I remember him distinctly looking at me saying, Sometimes mine aren't either. And that's all it was. <laughs> I never, never complained about my socks again, you know? So when Layden comes to me and says, My socks aren't right, I don't care. Put your socks on. Let's move on. So point is, he fell down, got mud on his knee. It's the end of the world. Mud on the knee. And I, and, I, and I tell you, I say this to my kids, and I do. I stopped him. We have tears. We're, we're losing it. I stop him. Did somebody die? No. Did somebody go to hell? No. Then let's quit crying and move on. I, I use that. Now, that doesn't mean I'm harsh, Dad, but sometimes we have to get perspective in life. Did somebody die and go to hell? No. Well, then I think we can probably work through this. And what I see sometimes as Christians... We can't work through it. Because it's the worst thing that's ever happened. The worst thing that could ever happen is a loved one going to hell. Anything past that can be worked with. Now, I want to make this clear. There's good days, there's bad days, there's good seasons, there's bad seasons, and dare I say there's good decades, there's bad decades. I don't want someone to walk away from this message saying, okay, so basically you're saying I'm not allowed to have a bad day, a bad year, bad... No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you can't allow those bad situations in your life to steal and suck the joy out of you because you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And if that's what's happening, we need to get back to the Scriptures and realize the Passover lamb of Easter brought you out of the world, brought you out of slavery, and you're no longer feeble. The tomb is empty, which gives you a reason to rejoice. So therefore, if you are weak, verse 12, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. It's interesting, that word for feeble in verse 12 is the same word used in the Gospels for paralyzed. These people were paralyzed. Paralyzed by what? Hebrews 12, they're paralyzed by life. Have you ever seen somebody physically healthy, paralyzed by situations? They, they, they just can't live life. They're paralyzed by, by just that depression, that discouragement, by that life that just sucked the joy out of them. 
oh, my heart breaks for that. But at the same time, too, more than a conqueror in Christ. Think about this. I heard it said one time, and I, and I had never studied out the math of it. They said, if you look at everybody that came to Jesus, 90% of those people that came to Christ came to Christ because they were in despair. Blind, lepers, issue of blood, death of a loved one, lame, fill in the blank. I don't think there's an account in the Gospels of somebody coming to Jesus saying, just had the best day ever and I want to get saved. It usually doesn't work that way. Usually if you have the best day ever, to be honest, we don't think of the Lord too much. It's times of despair where we start clinging to Christ. And so that's why Jesus is constantly surrounded by Blind, lepers, issue of blood, death of loved one, lame, tax collectors, prostitutes. He's just surrounded by people in despair. And so what does he do? He heals them. And look at all the lame people he healed. He heals them and what does he automatically say? Take up your mat and walk. Quit laying on the ground. And I don't mean that in some type of mean way, but you're no longer crippled. So don't act like a cripple. Get up. Walk. Go. And I think sometimes as Christians, people get saved. You are now knowing Christ. You are now more than a conqueror. So let's sit and talk about everything that's wrong in your life. No. More than a conqueror in Christ. And I've come to the conclusion sometimes when I counsel somebody, sometimes I think I do them a disservice by saying, let's analyze everything that's wrong in your life. And then let's do a token 30-second prayer at the end. Maybe, and, I, and I'm just speaking out loud right here, maybe I need to be the type of person that says, you know what? That is rough. Very rough. I will pray for you, and I mean that earnestly and sincerely, but right now let's just focus on being more than a conqueror in Christ. Because if the tomb is empty, if the Passover lamb has led us out of slavery, led us out of Egypt... And even though he took us into the wilderness, he's still going to provide the food, the water, the manna, the the quail, everything. God's going to see me through this. And even if this life is a life of suffering into my last breath, as we just read in Romans, the sufferings of this world do not compare to the glory that awaits us. I think as Christians, we have to stop and ask, am I a complainer or more a conqueror? That's the choice that needs to be made this Easter. And as we get ready here to partake of communion, I think it's a question we need to sincerely stop and say, Lord, am I really realizing the tomb is empty? Because that's all that matters. What we're going to do is this. Pastor Rich is going to come up and he's going to lead you in communion. I'm going to be in the back, back there. If you have anything you want to pray about while communion,